a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha. Today, we have the magnificent Benjamin Norton from the Gray Zone and the Moderate Rebels to talk to us about how not to be a regime change dupe. Thank you so much for coming. So basically, I'm so frustrated by alleged anarchists and social democrats and alleged liberals who fall for the same exact propaganda over and over. And I saw your video where you gave some really good hints, but how do we make people immune from U.S. regime change propaganda? So like, what is the first sign? For me, it's just if, if I see a protest being covered on CNN, I just, my red flag goes off. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think it's definitely good to be skeptical if you see corporate media outlets portraying it as a progressive revolution, considering these are the same corporate media outlets that endlessly demonize actual progressive revolutions. They endlessly demonize Venezuela, endlessly demonize Nicaragua, Cuba, Vietnam, every country that's had a progressive revolution, China right now. So you should definitely be suspicious of that. But I also think in general that people just need to look at the political conditions of any country, right? So I mentioned the case of Vietnam. We'll just take that as an example. Or China, another great example with with all this propaganda against China. It's so incredible to me that people will just eat up any of this propaganda without considering in any way the historical context for it. So even if you ignore the fact that these corporate media outlets that have sold every single war since the Spanish-American War, going back to the days <laughs> of yellow journalism. I mean, these are corporate media propaganda outlets that are functionally an arm of the U.S. government. So, But even if you ignore that entire history, let's say that we look at a country like China. It's incredible to me that we're supposed to believe that the U.S. government, especially under Trump and the Mike Pompeo State Department, is supporting progressive forces compared to a country that had, first of all, a communist revolution, a country that had 200 years of partial colonization by numerous countries that was colonized by European powers, by the British, by the Japanese, who were equally brutal in their colonial conquest of China. And we're supposed to believe now that I'm obviously referencing Hong Kong propaganda. We're supposed to believe now that this region, the autonomous region within the People's Republic of China, that's Hong Kong, we're supposed to believe that now the countries that colonized China, the specific country that colonized Hong Kong, Britain, is supporting progressive, even revolutionary forces against a supposedly reactionary regime. I mean, it, it's so ahistorical. So I think people just need to, it actually helps. You know, I've been talking about this more recently that one of it's some self-criticism, if you will. Right. For me as a journalist and for people, other people on social media who are really engaged in day to day battles of discourse. Right. Just like like fighting. I mean, because there's no real democracy in the U.S. So what happens is that people just fight for democracy. They fight over battles of discourse. And what's interesting, I mean, there are important struggles happening on the ground. But in terms of the Internet, a lot of it's discourse management. So what's incredible is that I think that a lot of us, even myself sometimes, who focus on these day-to-day -day struggles and focus on lies, disinformation, 
whatever the daily BS, but we kind of lose the forest for the trees sometimes. And I think if you just take a step back and you instead of just getting angry about whatever BS the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times are saying today, and you just think of things in their lo- their longitudinal historical context, I think they become much clearer. I agree with you. I honestly wish people were the way the neoliberals caricature tankies. Like, if you were just like, oh, if the U.S. supports it, I'm against it, you'd be right 99% of the time, maybe. But for those who don't want to be just caricature of a tanky, for example, like, why do some protests in some nations get covered while others don't? For example, Ecuador and Hong Kong were having protests at the same time, and only one got media attention in the U.S., and only one was kind of astroturfed by the NED. So why is there a correlation there between how much media attention and how much astroturfing? Well, of course, because corporate media outlets, and I I will say not even just corporate media, but a lot of so-called alternative and independent media they largely exist to reify the ideology of the ruling class. That's true of every country. The, the point is that they reify, and I, I use the term reify specifically because it's not just about reasserting, but also reifying in the sense of translating the ideology into physical reality. Because in the media, a lot of people, I shouldn't say we because I wouldn't consider myself in it, but people who, who are around media circles and not just people who are professional journalists and like with stupid blue checks on Twitter, but also people who are in, in that kind of circle in pushing back this world of pushing back against media propaganda. We often, it's a battle of idealism, not in the sense of idealism, like the way it's discussed in popular culture, where you want to see like the ideal world, but idealism in the sense of philosophical idealism, that, that the moving forces of history are ideas combating, which is ridiculous. That's not in any way true. Ideas are reinforced by the material reality and material conditions of the society you live in. So in in simpler terms, what that means is rich people who control a society fund the intellectuals, the academics and the media apparatus that reify that ideology, that turn that ideology into reality and that reinforces their own rule. And that's true of every society. And that's also true for socialist societies where, you know, you have intellectuals and journalists and commentators who support progressive ideas, support socialism. So in the case of Venezuela, there is an entire apparatus of of journalists who are very smart, very knowledgeable, very theoretically savvy. So I'm not even just saying that that's a unique part of U.S. society, but what is about unique about the U.S. is a few things. It's the richest country on earth. So although China, of course, is challenging that very quickly. So there's an insane amount of money that's put into the media. It's the most propagandized society on earth. So people are just constantly bombarded every single day with nonstop propaganda. And not just through the traditional news media, but every TV show they watch. Netflix is so full. All of these Netflix shows, every time I see one of these new, I don't really watch the shows as much because it's too much of a commitment. But like, I, there was this really extremely dumb Netflix movie that came out recently when it was like, these people who can't die. What is that stupid movie? And... I don't know. It's like, but it's it's like all these movies. They're just blatant CIA propaganda. There was an Amazon one where Hezbollah <laughs> and Venezuela were developing a nuke. Um, it was the new. What's it, uh, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Based on Tom Clancy. Yeah. So, and Tom Clancy himself is very close in those circles. So, 
I mean, the point is that it's not just the news media. It's also like the TV shows that people consume, it, the music people consume. And that's all that all goes to reinforcing the ideology of the U.S. ruling class and the government, of course. So, of course, it's a cliche, but I would highly recommend that everyone just go back and read Manufacturing Consent. Can I plug Inventing Reality? Michael Parenti, Inventing Reality. Yeah, yeah. Instead of Chomsky? N not to call you out, but you kind of just made the mistake, too. Chomsky was not the real, the main author of Manufacturing Consent. That's like a marketing. That's an example of, of Manufacturing Consent on the left. The lead author, whose name is listed first, who wrote the majority of the book, is is Edward Herman. It's not Noam Chomsky. Oh. And Edward Herman is almost entirely erased. Why? Because Edward Herman, it was smeared as a so-called tanky because Edward Herman was extremely consistent on like Chomsky. Edward Herman actually wrote some of the go-to, along with Michael Parenti, the go-to texts in terms of his long-form articles exposing the propaganda on the war in Yugoslavia. I mean, Edward Herman was the man. And he was the main author of Manufacturing Consent. And Chomsky actually admitted that. But what's so incredible these days is everyone's like, hey, read Noam Chomsky's book. But it's actually, not only was he only the secondary author, he wasn't even the main author. It's incredible. So Who it, was the main author? Edward Herman. Oh, okay. Well, but you said he wasn't even the secondary author. So who was the secondary author? No, well, I mean, sorry. It wasn't just that he was the secondary author. It's, it's that, no, what, the point I'm saying is that if there are two authors' names on a book, you should name both of them, especially if one of them who's named first wrote the majority of the book. But in the case of Chomsky, they totally erased the second name. It's absolutely, and not only erase the second name, they erased the main author. Let's say, I mean, there are celebrities who supposedly write books that are ghostwritten and, and they kind of like tell the story and then the ghostwriter writes it. Okay, I kind of understand in those contexts where people kind of erase the ghostwriter, but this wasn't ghostwritten. Anyway, whatever. The point is that, it's, this is a classic example of manufacturing consent on the left. <laughs> and Inventing Reality by Prenti is also a brilliant book. Both of those are good books. I mean, th those are cliche answers, but I also think you can do a political economy of the media and you can look at who owns the media, et cetera, who's funding it. We can talk about the role of billionaires like Pierre Omidyar, who's very closely linked to the National Endowment for Democracy, other U.S. regime change groups. And Omidyar, it's not just The Intercept. But, but, I mean, we should mention The Intercept and the fact that this guy has pledged many millions of dollars to, to bankroll The Intercept. But also, Omidyar funds Rappler, which is another so-called independent media outlet, and a host of other outlets. So there's, there's the billionaires and the political economy. But then we should also just look at the ideology of the workers within the media apparatus and how they they themselves reify that ruling class ideology. And the, sim the simple reality is if you challenge this propaganda, you're not going to get hired. You know, I mentioned like the forest for the trees. So we should always have a we should always structure our analysis with a structural understanding of these problems being systemic. But it also does help to deal with the trees sometimes. And in, in, in this metaphor, that would be these extremely dumb blue check journalists because they are given their job, not not because they're so talented and great reporters. The mass majority of these so-called journalists don't even do reporting. It's incredible Then all these New York Times so-called reporters that are in like Beirut or whatever country they're based in. They just never leave their air conditioned office. 
and they're just fed press releases and rewrite them. But then they say based in Beirut as if that somehow imparts upon them like physically being in a place, but not speaking Arabic, not talking to the locals, only hanging out with other Western journalists, but like being in the place that like their brain just internalizes somehow like the feeling or whatever. It's it's really dumb propaganda, but it works. So the, the simple reality is like, look, Chris Hedges was at the New York Times for a long time. And I love Chris Hedges and he's done a lot of great work. But honestly, if you look at his early work, especially in Central America, and he'll acknowledge this, he was totally on board with the U.S. government's narrative, especially when it came to the Contra war in Nicaragua, the, the U.S. terrorist war, also in El Salvador, totally on board. And then what happened is eventually he started waking up and realizing that he was part of this propaganda apparatus. And as soon as he challenged that propaganda on the war in Iraq, he was pushed out. This, is, this, is, this was an award-winning veteran correspondent from the New York Times who had been there for 15 years. This is as, as firmly established as you can get. But as soon as he went against the ruling class ideology, he was pushed out because that's what these media institutions exist to reify ruling class ideology. And then, of course, to make money. And the, making money is, is primary, but then the ruling class ideology is a key part of that because if you're not enforcing that ruling class ideology, you challenge your profits in the long term. Because if you're telling people not to trust the, the same corporate overlords that own the Washington Post, etc., Jeff Bezos, and they're going to lose their profits in the long term. Wow, that's a lot to take in. But that explains the overall theme of things. But then you see things that are just plain, I mean, ridiculous, like anything about Kim Jong-un. Like, for example, I noticed that everything about Kim Jong-un always comes from the South Korean source called Chosen Ilbo or something like that. Uh, that's just mixed. It, as far as I know, they just make things up. There's a threshold of ridiculousness that these outlets often pass. Like, how do you explain that? Well, in the case of, of the DPRK and what you were just talking about, there, there's also an entire apparatus that's been built up there. You're talking about the role. All of these institutions exist to reify particular power structures. That's true for every institution. The media is one of many institutions. Academia is another classic example of that. Economics and, departments. All oh, my God. Be. Which are <laughs> pure ideological management. There's very little science done in the economics departments. None. <laughs> I mean, in, in some some unorthodox or I guess heterodox, they call economics departments like UMass has some. But otherwise, it's a barren wasteland of Koch brother funded propaganda. But in, in the case of Korea, it's another great example of this because there's this entire apparatus has been built up that goes back to the Cold War and, and these these zombie institutions that still exist from the Cold War that are propped up by NED money and just because they're of their utility. Even at this point, the South Korean government, which, you know, it, it has off and on relationships with it, with the DPRK. But but the ROK, the Republic of Korea, still right now has a government that is much more sympathetic to the North than the U.S. would ever be. And in fact, the, the current president, Moon Jae-in, was elected specifically because he supported the, the peace breakthrough. And it's incredible to see how Trump has and his supporters and even some people who are a little more kind of impressionable on the left to an extent have internalized the idea that somehow Trump was responsible for that breakthrough. Actually, Trump just came in at the right time. And it was actually Moon Jae-in and the South Korean government that 
was pushing, they were the ones really pushing for the peace breakthrough with the North. But anyway, the point is that there's this entire media apparatus that's been built up and it's funded by the NED and all. And they just churn out these stories that are from like unnamed anonymous officials. And and then it, it just goes through like, you know, there's that meme of another, we're talking about so many garbage movies today. What was that movie? Human Centipede. Human, I, mean, I haven't seen that. There's like the C. Well, I've never seen it. But, I mean, it looks disgusting. But, but it, the premise of the movie, it's like one of those disgusting like body horror movies where like some torturer, fanatic, fascist like sews people's heads to like the butts of another person, and it became like a meme, where it's like the CIA eats like the propaganda, and then like it gets digested into like the media and then to the public. Like that. That's that's exactly how this works. That meme is is obviously like pretty blunt, but it's not wrong. And and North Korea propaganda is the perfect example of that. And it's not even just it's easy to point at how stupid the propaganda is there. But look, how many times have we heard that Kim is secretly dead where <laughs> but, but it's it's not even just there. You know, here in Nicaragua, I, I wrote an article at the Gray Zone look showing how all these major media outlets, including some of the top Western newspapers, The Guardian, the Wall, the Washington Post, they all either heavily heavily implied or outright reported that the president Daniel Ortega had secretly died earlier <laughs> this year and of coronavirus and that they were covering it up because the government supposedly wasn't dealing with coronavirus which is another propaganda fake news campaign and of course then he comes out and gives a speech and then they're like oh and they don't say anything actually even saying that they're like oh that's being, giving them too much credit because they never correct themselves because all they're doing is filling their ideological role of management. I mean, I'll just keep saying that just hitting that point is that they they fulfill a particular role. The commentariat plays the same role that Ivy League universities play in managing ruling class ideology and rebranding it. So even in terms of understanding these contradictions within structures, people are like, yeah, we'll push the New York Times left. And you're like, no, all you're doing is ensuring the the longevity, the institutional longevity of this institution, because this is also what is happening in academia, right? So in academia, there's a, a full-throated war on Marxism that's totally succeeded. <laughs> and and what 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 replaced Marxism in the in the academy? It was postmodern leftoid Foucauldian BS. And we now know that the CIA strongly supported the rise of French postmodern ostensibly left-wing philosophy. And look, when, when Gloria Steinem, the, the godmother of bourgeois feminism in the US, when she said in her interview, talking about how she worked as a CIA agent, she said the CIA is a progressive institution. They're all <laughs> liberals. She's not wrong in the sense that they're looking for a way to rebrand imperialist ideology and ruling class ideology and portray it as the progressive force. So now we get the idea that we have to defend, all these liberals are saying, well, despite Trump, he's the anomaly. We have to defend U.S. imperialism and NATO and the European Union because they're saving us from the evil yellow hordes of Chinese authoritarianism that just have it somehow in their bloodstream that they just worship dictators, unlike the enlightened liberals in the West. <laughs> I mean, so all these institutions, even the you know critical race theory, Foucault and, and French postmodern theory, Deleuze and Guattari, all these people... They're, what they're doing is helping to create a new intellectual stanchion, a new edifice to use to justify ruling class ideology in the in the the near future. 
I'm so glad you brought up Nicaragua. Um, yesterday, Joe, I don't know you saw if you saw oh, this, yeah. but Joe Biden tweeted something out saying that he wants to help Nicaraguan dissidents. But well, in the well, US, when, sorry to cut you off already. I've been ranting a lot, but people, we need to stop. This is I've been telling people we should stop saying Joe Biden tweeted it because Joe Biden doesn't use his own Twitter account. That guy can't even okay, speak. Sorry, <laughs> Joe Biden's account, social media manager, marketing team. <laughs> I need a done or somebody. But dissidents, like in the U.S., they always fall for dissidents as being like oppressed. And it's a so but we can't think of dissidents as values neutral. So, for example, in Nicaragua, the dissidents are probably the Contras who've like beheaded children or something. Um, what are the possibilities of dissidents from like being right wing to like left wing? Well, of course, by the nature of U.S. imperialism, pretty much all dissidents are right wing. And we should also understand liberalism as being part of the continuum of the right wing, right? And and this is when when you keep that in mind, it makes perfect sense how the Democratic Party and these institutions like the National Democratic Institute, more enlightened, so-called enlightened liberal members of the intelligence community, these so-called progressive spooks, right? They, it's not a coincidence that all the that a lot of the liberal resistance are the ones gravitating toward this scene because I really think we should do, should understand that the cold warriors leading the murderous genocidal wars on communism were actually many of them were not mouth foaming right wing conservatives. A lot of them were like highly educated, respectable liberals who considered themselves progressive in some ways, actually. And we really need to understand liberalism as an as a right wing ideology. And the fact that, I mean, in the US, the Republican Party is not really a liberal party anymore. It used to be. It's really just a fascist party. But the Democratic Party is very much. This is why I hear people say so-called liberals. No, I mean, liberalism is a, a, a go to Europe. If you say you're a liberal in Europe, people understand that to be a right wing ideology. In Australia, the Liberal Party is the right wing party. Yeah, they have a Labour Party. That's exactly right. So something that I try to think about is also the British Empire. You know, what's interesting is a lot of liberals. I mean, white supremacy is a very real force. It's another example of how ideology reifies existing material conditions of these institutions. So the, the ideology of white supremacy, I, I know I'm jumping around here, but this is all going to tie together in a second. The ideology of white supremacy is used to justify the existing power structure in which large, the majority white Western imperialist nations control the majority of capital and through sheer military and economic force known as imperialism, keep entire swaths of the world subservient to their interests. And white supremacy is the ideology created by European colonialists and used to justify that that capitalist and imperialist system. It's not the other way around. It's not that white supremacy predated European capitalism and that they were so racist that they invented capitalism. That's what liberals want us to think. And that's what that's what that's what Barack Obama wants us to think. Right. But no, it's the exact opposite. It's that this is the the hegemonic ideology in the the era of history that we're in post European colonial conquest and the Europeans spreading capitalist develop so-called development, which is in many parts of the world actually underdeveloping and de-developing, especially in the case of South Asia, Africa. But 
so how does that tie together here? The point I'm saying is that every empire uses these ideologies to reify its power structure. In the case of the British Empire, you had the idea of the white man's burden. Now, if you talk to liberals about this, they'll they tell you they genuinely think that the British Empire was colonizing the world because they believed in the white man's burden. No, 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 no. It's the exact opposite. The British justified their colonial conquest of the world by using the ideology of the white man's burden. That's that's how they justified stealing trillions of dollars from modern day South Asia, from in modern day India and Pakistan and Bangladesh. Trillions worth. We're talking tens of trillions of dollars of wealth. The same with with large swaths of Africa. The same. So the same thing is true for the American empire. The U.S. empire uses it's not the same as the white man's burden, but it's the democracy, human rights, freedom of the press, free speech, whatever, soft power through movies and music. That is the those are that that is the ideology of this free and open society that that spreads these great open values and supports liberalism. You know, the Democrats in many ways are actually more effective imperialists because they truly believe in that ideology. The Republicans have abandoned liberalism and they've just become basically fascists and don't really believe in that ideology anymore. And if they mention it, it's only to, to just use it as a tool, whereas some of these liberals have internalized the ideology, the Barack Obamas, the Hillary Clintons, the, the people who work at the NED. So anyway, that was a long that was a long kind of introduction to the answer to the question you just asked. So when, in the terms of Nicaragua, what's interesting is that there are two factions of the so-called opposition, which is very tiny. And I should mention that according to a mainstream polling firm that is not does not work with the government and very mainstream that's cited by corporate media outlets here in Nicaragua called MNR, MAR Consultore. They said in their most recent poll, they acknowledge that the opposition has support of around a little over 10 percent of the population and the Sandinistas have a support support around 60 percent of the population and the opposition. And then there's a 30 percent that kind of can go different ways, but is more like apolitical, which is true for many societies. But the t small 10 percent of the population that support the opposition, who, of course, make up the the overwhelmingly rich elite and with who have foreign passports and family in the US and Europe and Spain and whatever they if you take that part slice the slice them down there are two main opposition groups in Nicaragua there are what we could say the kind of like more right wing conservative types which is you know this common like in bourgeois capitalist democracy there's like the right wing conservatives and then like the center right liberals who are very similar but are a little more, at least on like social issues or cultural issues. We shouldn't say social, we should say kind of cultural issues. They're like a little more enlightened. So th that's the same thing with the opposition. So according to this polling firm, the 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 liberal opposition, I mean, they're both liberal, but like the, the liberal opposition, which is known as the MRS, the, the Movement for the Renovation of Sandinismo, which these are the former members of Sandinismo who were opportunists, who participated in the kind of process, the revolutionary process. And then when they lost power in the 90s, they all just became liberals and went to Harvard University and started creating NGOs and becoming academics that are and their work is funded by the National Endowment for Democracy, etc. 
and they are, they speak English. So they have all these fans in like Jacobin magazine and NGOs in the US who think that they're the real progressive resistance. And they, they use critical race theory and feminist rhetoric and all of this to, for to justify liberal imperialism because they're all on board. They're all they're the they, lo they love Obama. They love Clinton. They love Biden. So that faction has a support of around 5% of the population. And they have a coalition that's called the Blue and White National Unity. So they, they around 5% of the population. And then the more conservative, kind of Republican style opposition has literally support of 1% of the population. I'm not joking. That is according to this polling firm. They have 1% support. And this they're called the, the National Alliance. The, sorry, the Civic Alliance, Alianza Civica. And the Civic Alliance was created by the U.S. government during the, the coup attempt in 2018. So the, the U.S. created opposition group that they created during a coup attempt to try to unify the opposition. A recent polling firm literally says they have 1% support among the population. It is laughable, but excluding them, I mean, they're basically irrelevant. I mean, they, they represent the aristocratic, largely white elites and the the families like the Chamorro clan who can who have dominated Nicaraguan politics for 200 years. Chamorro is the general who like bragged about slitting somebody's throat, right? Well, the Chamorro family is complicated because it's a big family because they're the oligarchs who traditionally dominated Nicaraguan politics for like for over 100 years, for like 200 years. And, and there are two two extremely powerful capitalist families, also the, the Pelas family. And of course, they're of partial Italian descent. So these are elite families with partial European descent who or, or U.S. descent who are extremely rich oligarchs who have dominated the country's politics for many years. And the Chamorros, there's many of them and there are splits within them, actually. So there are some that they're the more conservative Republican style and some who are the more liberal Democratic line alliance style. But they're all, they're, you know, they're the bourgeois opposition, Tucsonanismo, and they also dominate the media specifically. So. La, La Prensa, which is the main newspaper, has a history of being funded by the NED and the CIA. And Confidencial is, an, is a voice of the Chamorros as well. And, and they, they all have their particular constituencies. But as they say in Spanish, al fin y al cabo, which is like, I guess you could say at the end of the day, they, they serve the same interests. They're, they're, they're basically the same with some slight differences like the Republicans and the Democrats. And what's also incredible about that is that when you look at the rhetoric of the opposition you a lot of americans they just well first of all the sandinistas don't really have a lot of stuff in english and that's true for the chavistas in venezuela but if you listen to the rhetoric of the the opposition in nicaragua especially the mrs the liberals who are funded by the us as well but the more democratic aligned you would think if you were like a, a an an impressionable liberal who don't who doesn't know anything about Latin America or anything really outside of your little bubble, you would think that they're great enlightened progressives like Bernie Sanders or something. So it's just an example of like the liberalism is a right wing ideology. And because the U.S. is so insanely far right, basically just fascist. I mean, we need to acknowledge that. And this didn't begin with Trump. This goes back, I mean, well before Bush, but like when it really became like pretty explicitly fascist, you could say is after 9-11. Uh, to the U.S., everything that uses this kind of language, like progressive language, seems left wing. But I mean, it, people laugh at the the 
American left and for the U.S. left. The unfortunate reality is people laugh at at it in Latin America because they just think that it's like amusing. That kind of brings a good thing that often Americans see things as separate. For example, the Venezuelan opposition, they're counter-revolutionary. The Bolivian opposition, they're just Nazis, children of Nazis, literally. I'm not kidding. Um, And like even today in Belarus, the same thing. And these are not separate things that are happening. So whenever there's a socialist government, there's an internal force that fights back. And how do people see the pattern, I guess. Can you talk about the pattern? Yeah, well, a few things. I mean, you raised a lot of really good points there. The case of Bolivia is is a classic example of what, I, what we should call the, the blue-brown coalition, the br- blue-brown alliance. You know, there's this attempt by the, these like anarcho-neocon forces who are anarchists who just so happen to love NATO and the European Union. And anytime a liberal imperialist institution or politician is, is being threatened, they're so scared and because they're just liberals, because anarchism is a liberal ideology. And, you know, there are better anarchists, but a lot of anarchists, ultimately, you just scratch that hard enough and they just fall back on liberal imperialism 90% of the time. And what's incredible is that they have this campaign to, I mean, they've targeted it with you of black, brown, or, sorry, red, brown, right? Oh, it's, yeah. So if, if you oppose imperialism, if you oppose the European Union, if you oppose NATO, which is the Nazi aiding and transporting organization, if you look at its history, I mean, that's what yeah. we should call it. But if I mentioned the white man's burden being the ideology used by the British to justify their empire, these institutions are used to justify the American empire because the idea is that NATO is so and the European Union, the European Union, the the, the rebranding with like Euro communism. And I mean, that that's a little different, but like all of like the European so-called communists who just sold out and all became social Democrats who with with like a kind of like old, old, like Cold War veneer of like aesthetics. But they just became social Democrats who love the European Union and, and they all basically just lost. We wonder I wonder why they lost power. Hmm. But th- that whole it's incredible to see how they this that entire apparatus branded the European Union as some kind of progressive institution. This is this is a this is an a literal cabal, but it's run by German bankers. <laughs> it's and it's run by people who are descendants of the Nazis. The 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 Nazis wanted to take over Europe. Well, they they kind of succeeded with the, the European Union, which is one of the most right wing institutions I can think of. But there's this idea we saw with Brexit. If you supported Brexit, you're either a fascist or red brown, and all of the all of the the Guardian contributors who are freelance writers who somehow live in $2,000 a month apartments in London, a hint, hint because they're from rich families, and contribute a, an op-ed every month to The Guardian about why Games of Thro- Game of Thrones is a good example for why, why Daddy Bernie is going to win the primary or whatever. Like These people, they, they're, they bear just as much of responsibility for the death of the left, and they would have us believe that the European Union is some great progressive institution. Sorry, you were saying something there. Oh, I'm, I was just saying that our audience does not believe that because we <laughs> did talk about the history of austerity with Mark Blythe and how the European Union kind of just held a gun to Greece's head and uh, made them uh, like cut pensions for seniors. So, yeah, but other people's audience definitely do believe that. And the single monetary union itself is taking away sovereignty from states. 
But um, yes, it is a right-wing idea, a right-wing institute. But you were saying about how they influence the media. Well, sorry. So I, I've had a lot of asides here. I'm kind of ranting a lot, but these things are all related and I'm going to try to tie it together. So the, I mentioned the reason I mentioned all of that is because of this idea I think we should talk about more because those are the forces we talked about, like the people call them the syncretic left, the synthetic left is better, the anarcho-neocons, the, the, the so- social democrats who support imperialism, the social chauvinists, as Lenin used to call them. Well, they're the ones who talk about the red-brown alliance, which is ridiculous. We should talk about the blue-brown alliance, the liberal fascist alliance, because that is much more real. And we see that in many cases. We see that in Ukraine. Oh, God. We see that with Alexei Navalny, who is objectively far right. But the thing about it is that in Russia, the number two uh, opposition party is the Communist Party, but we never talk about them. Even, and Navalny has like zero people in the par- in the Duma, and we hear about him all the time getting poisoned every year. <laughs> no, and now that they're just clearly trying to destroy the, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, I mean, it's so clear they immediately spelled it out in the media. There was no nuance. It's a, a blatant psyop. I mean, it's so ridiculous. But but anyway, and people can quote me on that. I don't care because it's going to be proven right in a year or two like it always is. But but anyway, anyway so the, the point is that there's just as many, if not more examples, way more examples, honestly, of the liberal fascist, the blue brown. And I say blue, by the way, because in the U.S., the blue blue is associated with with the Democrats because there is this kind of realignment, which is hilarious. But the the conservatives in the Tories in the U.K. used blue. Margaret Thatcher was look at all look at any campaign event. It was always blue. And labor labor uses red, even though I mean, labor is not a left wing party anymore. But labor has a history in, in the labor movement. Labor has a history kind of on the left a little bit. And the red is the color of the left. But of course, in the US, it's the exact opposite, even though I mean, the Democrats aren't the left. But anyway, whatever. But so the blue around the world is the color of liberalism. So in Ukraine, a great example of that. We see that also in Latin America, where the liberals are along with, I mean, again, Republicans are, well, the ones that aren't fascists are also kind of liberals too, at least the, the Marco Rubio's and the and the John McCain's who aren't explicitly fascist, who are just like imperial empire loving liberal warmongers, which they're not exactly the same as the fascists, but they're at the end of the day for people in the global south, they're basically the same, which is the blue brown coalition again. So you mentioned the case of Bolivia. The opposition in Latin America is another good example of the blue brown coalition. In Bolivia, you have the literal fascists you mentioned, like the pro Santa Cruz Civic Committee, who are the descendants of Croatian Nazis from the Ustasha, who were probably the most ideologically extreme, the most far right of the fascist forces in the 1930s. Allegedly, Franco Marinkovic uh, claims that his grandfather was a partisan, but I'm still I don't believe that. Yeah, right. I don't believe it. But Uncle Marinkovic, people don't know, who is now in the Bolivian government. This is one of the main Bolivian oligarchs. He was forced into exile after after a failed coup and assassination attempt against Evo Morales over a decade ago. He was forced into exile. He spent some time in the U.S. And where did he go after that? Into Brazil. Huge Bolsonaro supporter. Total fascist. And he claims that his family weren't Croatian Nazis. Yeah, right. I I, I don't believe that. But for a second. But 
you will see the pro center crew civic committee nazi saluting doing francoist fascist phalange salutes so there's them but then there are there genuinely are the liberal i mean they're neoliberal but they're liberal i mean neoliberalism has its root in, rich in liberalism then you have the the liberal opposition who formed an alliance with the fascists so you know people talk about janice vacadaza like she formed an alliance with fascists and and was totally i don't think she's secretly a fascist but liberals very frequently form alliances with fascists against the left there's a there's a history for as long as there's been fascism of liberals doing that we saw that in Latin, we saw that in venezuela and we still see that very clearly right now and what's incredible by the way is when we're talking about the liberal opposition th this is how we get all these people who are like juan guaido is a social democrat who his party voluntad popular is part of the Socialist International. Hey, well, actually, they're right that his party is part of the Socialist International, which is a right-wing institution, which has nothing to do with socialism. The Mexican, the Mexican pre-party is part of the Socialist. The Israeli Labor Party, whose leader literally said, we are not a left-wing party, we're a centrist party, is what he said. And they're a right-wing, they're a pretty far-right party. They're also members of the Socialist International. Don't want to be a regime change dupe? Want to fight the Blue-Brown Alliance? Help support independent media exposing the fash and their enablers writing for the Grey Lady op-ed sections. Please go to historically.substack.com and check out all of our episodes and newsletters and support us with your subscription. That's historically.substack.com. I was just going to ask you to talk about your expose of Socialist International and what you did a few years ago. So just kind of quickly mention to people what it is and what they did, I guess. Well, that's something different. The, the Socialist International. So, of course, what happened is when the European left in the 1800s was trying to unify, they created an international, which at first included anarchists and what are now known as Marxist or scientific socialists, people who actually believe that you need to have a, a scientific process to socialist revolution and not just say, I want to do what I want to do all the time and any structure is bad. So you have the tyranny of structurelessness. Anyway, whatever. So there was a split in the first international. There's a second international. There's the third international, which became the communist international. And then there was the fourth international who were, were like the trots who have never accomplished anything and support, in most cases, support imperialism. So if anyone's affiliated with the Fourth International, immediately be suspicious. That's not to say that there are some there aren't some good individuals who are kind of misguided, but as a structural force, bad news. Then there are other internationals that that look to that model. So then there was the Socialist International, who were like the soft social democratic forces, and mostly in in Europe. And then there were some other forces in the global south who joined the Socialist International, and among those have been. The pre-party in Mexico, which has a complicated history, but for decades has been thoroughly neoliberal, extremely right-wing, extremely corrupt. And Enrique Peña Nieto, the former president, was part of the PRI. And this is a guy who, I mean, objectively right-wing. And his party is a member of the Socialist International, along with Juan Guaido's party. So the, the fact that it's a member of the Socialist International is just a proof is proof that all these social democrats and European liberals are right wing. Okay, thanks for confirming that. Yeah, the European Union recognizes Juan Guaido. Great, cool. Your your favorite great liberal beacon of hope, the European Union. More another example of the 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 blue brown coalition. 
there was a literal fascist founding member of NATO, which is never talked about. It's incredible. Portugal, the Portuguese fascist regime, which was explicitly fascist, modeled after classical European fascism of Francoism, Italian fascism, and Nazism. The Portuguese fascists were a founding member of NATO. And then, of course, actually in Spain, the Francoist fascist regime had a very close relationship to NATO. So wasn't the first president of NATO a former Nazi? I'm not sure. But of course, in Germany, I, I'm, it's probably true. I'm not sure. I don't know specifically. But but if you look at, of course, the history of of Ger West Germany, which never had a denazification program, unlike communist DDR, East Germany, which had thorough denazification. But in capitalist West Germany, over around 70 percent of the Justice Department into the 70s, up into the 70s, was former members of the Nazi party and huge swaths. In fact, the leaders of of Interpol, the international police force, the leaders of Interpol were former Nazis. And some of them not even not even like ex-Nazis. They were like unreconstructed Nazis who didn't even apologize. What's an unreconstructed Nazi? People who were like basically just crypto Nazis who still believed in it. There were there were the Nazis who were like genocidal war criminals who joined the Nazi party because it was in power and they were opportunists, but they didn't really believe in the ideology. They were just going along with it because that's what these opportunists do. And and we see that with the U.S. war machine now and 100, 200 years from now, people are going to look back at the Eichmanns in the U.S. empire who thought they could just move. They thought they could move National Socialism left. They could move the the Wehrmacht left. Right. So there are those forces. I apologize. It's not the first NATO president that was a literal Nazi. It was the first e European economic community president, Walter Halstein, who like wrote love letters to Hitler and stuff. So there you go. I mean, I wasn't being <laughs> hyperbolic when I said that the European Union accomplished the, the Nazis dream. So anyway, the point is that this gets back to the main question in, in Latin America and this, this blue brown alliance. I mean, it's very real. And for the entire history of fascism, liberals have found, found common cause with fascists against communists and socialists, but especially communists, because socialism is like a slippery word. And there are socialists who are revolutionaries and anti-imperialists. And then there are so-called socialists who are the French Socialist Party who just become neoliberals and support empire. I mean, if you look at so many of these examples, especially in Latin America, Nicaragua is another great example of that. The people who supported the Contras are now the enlightened liberal opposition. That's actually a very good uh, way to describe liberalism. But one video that I saw that I really liked from you is, um, can you explain to me, like, let's say that I'm arguing with the regime change troll. Why is it better for me to say Kim Jong-un was the democratically elected leader of the People's Democratic Republic of Korea and frack off as opposed to whatever else people do? I don't know about troll tactics. I try to avoid dealing no, with trolls. No, but you made but... a video about that where you actually said, like, explained why it's better to not, like, you know how they used to, like, say, oh, you must be an Assadist. You don't want to capitulate, right? Okay, I see, I see what you're getting at. I see what you're getting at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, well, look, because first of all, the a lot of these things are facts, right? So, I mean, it's an objective fact that Nicolás Maduro, great example, is the democratically elected president of Venezuela. And I've spent quite a bit of time in Venezuela. I spent last year I spent about five months. And he 
believe me, there is actually a very active opposition on the ground. It's surprising how little repression is like. There's much, much, much less repression in Venezuela than in the U.S. Well, Way less. Juan Guaido, he was able to declare himself president and he's not even in jail. I mean, come on. And plan numerous military coups. <laughs> and by the way, Maduro just released a hundred so-called political prisoners or not political prisoners, these right wing opposition terrorists and coup plotters who be, would be executed in the U.S. because they participated in violent coup attempts to overthrow their elected government. And Maduro just released a lot of them, these people who are violent terrorists because of an act of goodwill in the lead up to the December parliamentary elections. And what was the response of the U.S. corporate media? They, they published a bunch of articles saying that this is the Maduro regime's tactic, the authoritarian regime's tactic to try to portray itself as democratic and all that, whatever. Like anytime that in Nicaragua, they released a bunch of political prisoners after so-called political prisoners, coup mongers, people... I wrote a report about how one of the so-called political prisoners who was included in a list of so-called political prisoners published by a group funded by the U.S. government and supported by Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International and the Organization of American States, one of, actually not just one, multiple of those so-called political prisoners who were then released in an amnesty that was issued after negotiations between the government and the opposition, they went on to commit murder and other violent crimes. One some uh, one right wing extremist who participated in the coup attempt in 2018 and was in, and then imprisoned for carrying out a bomb attack against the government. There is video of that, by the way. And after he was released as part of the amnesty process or demanded by the opposition, the U.S. Embassy and Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, after he was released, he stabbed his pregnant girlfriend to death. So these are the great political prisoners that the, the U.S. and Human Rights Watch are lobbying for. But anyway, the point is that Getting back to the main point. So the first part of the answer to that question is because these are facts. So we shouldn't be afraid of saying facts. But but also even beyond that, look, the, the reality is a lot of this. I've been blabbering a lot, but I'm trying to stress a point is that anti-imperialists, people, revolutionaries on the left often think that imperialism is is justified by a kind of right-wing conservative ideology. But no, I'm actually arguing the opposite. And we need to listen to what these CIA operatives say, because they're, when Gloria Steinem says a lifelong CIA asset, and if you think that she's still not, the people really need to wake up, because she's a lifelong counterinsurgency operative uh, against the, the, the communist left and the anti-imperialist left. She, she was a key figure involved and there are a lot of people around her. I won't name names, but we'll say maybe mm, people who are like the Gloria Steinem endowed chair at Rutgers University who refer to Venezuela's elected government as petropopulism. But anyway, the point is, this is counterinsurgency against the left. And Gloria Steinem, you can find a video on YouTube where she's like, no, you don't understand. The CIA are, are progressives. They're, they're enlightened liberals who believe in blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, because... They understand that to to justify imperial conquest, that that's the ideology that they use to reinforce imperial conquest. And OK, if they have to form an alliance with fascists, they don't care because they're just they're, they're They can use the, the liberal ideology to just just to to whitewash what they're doing, which is how you can have the first black president arming neo-Nazis in Ukraine. And there's not a word about it. And if you say if you mention that fact. 
then you're then you're a Russian propagandist. So you can't pretend like all of these people are mouth foaming Nazis. What actually the reality is that they're more than happy to, to make an alliance with malforming Nazis because to them, the end justify the means because they really believe their own propaganda. They've drunk the Kool-Aid. And then finally, the third point I was going to say in response to your question is that Adam Johnson, who used to write more, he's not really writing that much, but he, uh, I, I don't, I don't, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal this idea from him because I like this metaphor. He uses the metaphor of football, which is brilliant, like, like American football, like in the rest of the world, which would not be called football because it doesn't involve feet. So it's dumb, but like rugby ish. Yeah. yeah. So but Adam Johnson made a point, which I really liked about how if you're if you're if you're playing ideological fo American football, he's like, if you, what these liberal the liberals do is that they even, even the ones who claim to kind of be slightly against war or whatever, even though they usually are pro war, what what ha what happens is that they will take the football to the 90th yard line. Like they'll take it right to the touch of, of a touchdown, like right, like, like 10, 10 feet away or yards. I, I'm so bad with sports. I don't know. Is it feet or yards? This works for any goal playing sport. So let's just do soccer because I know better. <laughs> but like you take it 90% across the field and almost in the goal. And then you stop and you say, whoa, 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 whoa. But I don't support a military invasion. So like Assad, he he literally eats children for breakfast. <laughs> he drinks the blood of Sunnis. I mean, he he he's a he's a secret white. He's an Arab white supremacist who's not white. That but one from the okay. That article was like so ridiculous. I just could not believe they printed it. <laughs> but but you you take it to the 90th yard line. This guy's the new Hitler. But I oppose military intervention to remove the new Hitler. So it's like even if you ignore everything I just said strictly from a utilitarian standpoint, if you really oppose war, why would you let them take it to the 90th yard line? Why would you let them take it 90% of the way and help them sell their own propaganda war and then say, well, whoa, whoa, by the way, I oppose military intervention. I don't want the US military to invade Venezuela. I'm just saying that, you know, Nicolas Maduro is, is an evil authoritarian dictator who likes to starve people for fun and is the, is the new Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot all combined. And also he, I don't like him because uh, um, I, he's, he, he's bad. Like, I mean, that's what they do. And then they, they just, they provide the intellectual justification for military intervention and other forms of imperialist intervention. So cyber war, attacks on the electrical infrastructure, the blockade, um, numerous other forms of information warfare, etc. So they take they take it all the way there, and then they justify it and say, "Well, I oppose it." No, and this is the this is a point I should have stressed more often. Liberals have popularized this idea that anti-racism is not just a position; anti-racism is an action. You don't just say, "I'm against racism." You have to act against racism. I agree with that 100. That that's a correct analysis. That's a systemic analysis of how racism functions. Now, what they won't tell you is, is how racism functions as a structural force to justify imperialism and capitalism because they support imperialism and capitalism, but they're against racism. That's like this like vague liberal idea of racism. But that's the same, the same exact thing is true for anti-imperialism. Just as to be anti-racist, it's more than just ideological. It's more than just saying I'm against racism. You have to be, you have to actually take material action against racism. The same thing is true for anti-imperialism. You don't just say, oh, well, I'm against 
intervent U.S. intervention anywhere, but Maduro is evil, but Assad is evil. And it's like, no, you're, you're objectively helping imperialism because imperialism is not just your political position that you say on your Twitter profile or a piece of paper. What are you actually doing to challenge the forces of imperialism at a material, ideological, discursive, economic, information level, at all those levels? How are you challenging those forces? And if, and if all you do is actually just help justify and reinforce imperialism at an actual as, as an actual force, but then you say that my pure ide my Trotsky ideology, according I, I say and my, my my magical words go out like a prayer and and, I, and they're against empire. No, you're objectively helping empire by by manufacturing consent for imperialism. And imperialism doesn't care. The U.S. government, the U.S. military, the World Bank, NATO, they don't care if Trotskyites and social Democrats and liberals say they're against military conquest or whatever, because it's, they're useful to justifying that conquest. I would lose my reputation as being a hardcore Stalinist if I didn't admonish you for putting Stalin in there with Hitler and Pol Pot. <laughs> oh, no, no. Well, no, I'm being sarcastic, obviously. I know. I mean, you know, it's what's, what's the, the drill tweet? Every, everyone. All, all good things are bad things or whatever. Yeah. And it's like, yes, the people who literally defeated Nazism are Nazis. OK, thank you. And that, that's how you get this red brown thing. The people who are literally the ones who defeated fascists are the real fascists, whereas the liberal imperialists who support fascism basically everywhere, except at home, they are the, they are the ones fighting fascism. And, and one other point to this here, when we're talking about fascism, the, what's so funny is the same liberals who will admonish people for being Eurocentric supposedly because they don't support Al-Qaeda and its rebranded forms and Salafi jihadi fascists in Syria, they themselves have a European, a Eurocentric understanding of fascism because fascism takes different forms. In, in the case of South Asia, you have Hindutva, which is a fascist movement, objectively. And you look at the second leader of the RSS, Goldwalker, who quotes, he quotes the fascists in his founding document. Oh, yeah. Goldwalker. We a nation defined, right? And he literally says that we should take like German racial fitness and, and apply it to Hindustan. So and then you look at the Middle East and you look at at Salafi jihadis. That's that's fascism in that particular political and historical context. And the, the same liberal imperialists who support fascism in Ukraine want us to believe that they're great freedom fighters in Syria. No, it's the same thing. They're supporting fascism there as well. And if you support the forces that are fighting fascism, the Syrian Arab army, Hezbollah, it's true Iran is a, a theocratic state, but Iran has done infinitely more to preserve the secular state and the secular fabric of the Middle East in Syria and Lebanon than any force allied with Western liberals who are trying to destroy secularism in Syria and Lebanon. I mean, Lebanon is complicated because it's not really secular. It's kind of like a mix, but the Syrian government has literally saved Christians of different sects, Shia of different sects, and many Sunnis, many Sunnis who don't want to live under ISIS and Al-Qaeda. They, they were all saved by the Syrian Arab army and Hezbollah and Iran and Russia. 
But the ones who literally defeated fascism are the real fascists. It's it's absolutely incredible. And it goes it's it's the blue brown alliance, which is the real fascist alliance. Yeah. And there's one more new thing that comes with liberalism and their anti-racism is where you they keep on saying, oh, you need to listen to actual Bolivians or Syrians. Can you talk about that part? Yeah, this is this is this is hilarious, because what they mean is listen to Bolivian voices, asterisk, asterisk, listen to ironically, overwhelmingly light skinned Bolivians who speak fluent English, who were educated at elite elite schools, who often spent a lot of time in the U.S. and Europe, who were descendants of European and U.S. immigrants or colonialists who are, are rich. That's what they mean. Listen to, because look here in Nicaragua, the Sandinista front, the mass base of the party are poor working class people who are not very highly educated, who do not speak a word of English. And the people who speak English who are quoted in Jacobin magazine are the elites who studied at Harvard University. And I'm not even being hyperbolic in any way. There's particular people I have in mind I'm thinking of who are members of this RMRS, which Jacobin loves and all of like the fake pro-imperialist left in the U like the fake left who is pro-imperialist in the US and Canada and Europe. They all love another group, Maria Socialista is this, this tiny Trotskyite group in Venezuela, which barely exists except on paper. Jacobin has published like a bunch of articles with them, interviews with them. And and that's because they speak English. They're active in social media. They reach out to other pro-imperialist so-called leftists in the global north. And because they have a very strong cultural affinity, actually, it's not even just their class background, because class background informs cultural background, right? Because it's true that Poor people tend to have friends who are poor people and rich people tend to hand out, hang out with rich people. There's an entire culture built around people's class position. And the reality is that that the affluent, liberal, cosmopolitan bourgeoisie in Latin America and other countries, I, I, I say Latin America because I know it better. These people have more culturally in common with the progressive sectors of the so-called U.S. left than they do with working class people in their own country who, who to them are the help. And, and why, why, why would they talk to the help? Why, why would they talk to their Uber drivers? So th there's definitely this class dynamic there. So when they say, listen to Syrian voices. So in the case of Bolivia, I mean, I'm thinking of people like Janice Vacadaza, whose who's great grandfather was a dictator who ruled Bolivia. So she's part of the extreme elite. And 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 by the way, why does she not use vaca? She uses always Daza and, and it hyphenates the V. Because he he lost Bolivia the sea, right? It, well, and also because the, the vaca family are one of the most powerful oligarch families in Bolivia. So she's trying to downplay her ties ah. to the elite oligarchs. That's true for so many of these countries in Latin America. So when, when they say listen to Venezuelan voices, they mean listen to the voices of the 0.1% of the elite population who speak fluent English and who go to Miami every few months to go on vacation and go shopping and have dual passports. Whereas, look, the vast majority of the Sandinista and Chavista base have never left the country because it's expensive. Look, the minimum wage in Latin America in basically every country is like 200 to $300 a month. And it changes a bit. People can't afford to go abroad. So if people go abroad, they're in the upper class, period unless they're being paid by the government, they're they're in the upper class. And then in the case of Syrian voices, people mean, listen to once again, the elite English speaking 
people who who live in Turkey, they don't even live in Syria or live in the US or live in Europe and work for some NGO funded by Western governments or big foundations. So actually, when they say that, what, what you should, when people say that language, what you should, what it should really, it should be a, a bad red flag, not the good red flag, a bad red flag symbol, symbol, signaling to you that they mean, listen to Syrian voices of the elite and ignore 95% of Syrian voices. Listen to Venezuelan voices of the elite and ignore 95% of Venezuelan voices. Ben, I know you write for Gray Zone. How do people find you besides Gray Zone? Like, just give them all the places to find you. Yeah, well, I, we, you mentioned the Gray Zone. That's thegrayzone.com, and that's gray with an A. And I'm on Twitter. You can find me at Benjamin Norton, or just look up Ben Norton. And I have a podcast as well, and a video show version with my colleague Max Blumenthal, who's the editor of the gray zone in our podcast is called moderate rebels and we talk about a lot of these issues but thank you for having me on because i ranted a lot sorry for you know just like blabbering a lot but no this is exactly what we needed because i've been so frustrated by ever like so many people just so i've been called an uger alleged genocide denier and i'm like that's like being called an incubator baby denier and so I've been trying to explain to people like how to see past this propaganda and have a inherent skepticism. And you've kind of explained the underlying structure. So at least it helps them kind of understand where they get their propaganda from. Yeah. yeah and there was one final point I, I was going to mention. and I forgot to mention really quickly here, you know, and on this note of fascism and genocide denial and all this stuff. Meanwhile, these people are supporting an active genocide in Yemen, uh, a, a mass murder, a kind of genocidal mass murder of Venezuelans. And I mean, it, the hypocrisy is insane. But when we're talking about fascism, the way that liberals can justify this kind of intellectual, I mean, it's totally ridiculous, but there's like a seed of intellectual justification to this intellectual sleight of hand of the, of the red-brown coalition. And it's because, they, as I mentioned, they take a very specific form of European fascism that's a very classical model and ignores all the other forms of fascism and just ignores their, their own alliance with fascism in certain countries like Ukraine. But also we need to understand fascism as a particular product of European colonialism and U.S. imperialism. And I think when you look at it in that light, things make more sense. And specifically, uh, there is a, an absolutely brilliant thinker, anti-imperialist, anti-colonialist thinker, Aimé Césaire. And Aimé Césaire wrote a really brilliant series of discourses on colonialism in which he theorized fascism as the application of European colonialism internally. Ah. And I think that when you, when you start understanding how imperialism functions and colonialism functions, imperialism being related to colonialism, but a kind of the highest stage the point is that the same methods of domination, the same economic and political, the same economic models of extraction, the same political models created of ultra hierarchy in European colonialism were then applied internally to oppressed nations within fascist nations. So th this is why when we say the war comes home in the US, fascism is the application of what US empire does abroad internally. And we're seeing that more and more. So you see like the Republicans 
at least the Trump types who say they don't want to wage war abroad. Of course, it's hypocritical and he doesn't actually mean that, but they want to wage war at home. And if you look at Hitler, the, the most blatant example of this, Hitler himself was Nazi ideology was inextricably linked to American U.S. racial supremacist ideology of Jim Crow, which and also settler colonial ideology used to justify colonization of the Americas. So it doesn't make it's not a it's not it's not a surprise. It's not a surprise that the same pro-imperialist forces allied with imperialism, allied with fascism and that these same fascists and former Nazi collaborators who fled to Latin America are so they support empire sort of imperialism because what the European colonialists did in other countries is the same thing that the European fascists did inside their own countries. And when, when we look at the U.S. empire, I think suddenly that that framework makes everything we're talking about makes it more clear and makes it clear why, which I think we should probably name this episode, the liberal fascist alliance is is absolutely the the most the most destructive force on the planet. And just as the liberal fascist alliance supports the rise of fascism in other countries and, and, and liberal imperialism supports the rise of fascism in other countries, they bear just as much responsibility for the, the rise of fascism in, in the so-called West, in the US and Europe. One last point before you go. Often, um, like the way they tempt you into supporting imperialism is giving you a false choice between freedom and a dictator versus, I don't know, privatizing water, air, and, uh, but they, like, they don't explain what the choices are. So whenever they say freedom versus dictator, what's like the price of freedom? Freedom for whom? Communists used to used to ask that question. Freedom for whom? For which class? Of course, it's 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 the ruling class, the bourgeoisie. Freedom for people who who went to a sixty thousand dollar a year school but don't have student debt because their family members are lawyers, corporate lawyers, or doctors, or whatever, and they they decided they wanted to be like a a freelance journalist and who are like cool woke progressives or whatever. No, I mean that this whole narrative it's always. And even within media debates, it's usually still debates between these ruling class circles and then people who are like still not from working class backgrounds. Like, look, I'm not trying to say like I'm some kind of working class champion. I'm definitely not. But like when I was in high school, I worked at McDonald's for just just one one summer between high school and another summer I worked at Walmart. And like I'm not in any way like I, I don't come from like a dirt poor background. I come from like a lower middle class background. But like even I laugh at like all these media circles and these people. And it's like, both of you went to Princeton. Both of you went to, went to Cornell and have PhDs or MAs or whatever. And you're both debating uh, like the merits of like your social democratic Bernie Sanders model or whatever. I mean, it's just like the, the entire the entire framework is within this very limited slice of society that represents five or 10 percent of actual society, whereas working class people are not actually represented. So answering your question more directly about freedom, they mean freedom for the bourgeoisie. And we need to be able to reframe that and say that, look, in socialist societies, the working class have way more rights. The working class, they have way more freedom because they don't have to do some stupid job they hate because they're going to starve or be homeless. But like, we don't even <laughs> think about the freedom of these, these 
bourgeois or petty bourgeois elites who whose parents let them go study whatever they wanted in at Princeton or whatever. They these these people, even if they're not part of like the Silicon Valley elite oligarchs, like they they still don't represent the working class in any way, and the working class has no freedom in especially U.S. society, but really in any capitalist society, they're indebted. It's it's and I'm not trying to downplay how severe that chattel slavery was, but it's wage slavery. And there's the famous Lenin quote: "Democracy now is." And he was, he was saying this 100 years ago in, in Europe. Democracy now is the same as it was for the, the ancient Greeks. Democracy for the slave owners. And that's exactly what so-called freedom is in Western capitalist nations today. And I say that not just for the U.S., but also for the great, beloved West, the European social democracies. And it's not necessarily just their local working class. The working class is international. And in the age of neoliberal globalization, the working class is largely the people who produce what the economy is based on are largely based on the global south. So, okay, fine. Denmark has some great model of, of chauvinist imperialist social democracy that still relies on the enslavement of workers in the global south. Where's their freedom? Where's the freedom for people who not only have no clean water, but freedom who they can't choose where they live because they, in, where they live in terms of a house because they, they basically live in like migrant workers in the UAE who are like forced like 20 people in a house who live as modern day servants and they just work all day long and are basically kept as modern day slaves or people who, okay, maybe they have, they can, they can choose where they live technically, but only in like a poor neighborhood because they can't afford rent, but they can't afford what job they have. They can't afford what, if their children go to school, if their children go to school, they can only do a certain discipline. They can't, they can't pursue their dream. There's no freedom for them. Even these social democrats and these so-called socialists, they just want freedom for their own like liberal friends to be part of the new enlightened liberal ideology, so they can write articles for the Guardian. That they're not working. They they don't. They're not working class. I mean, again, Lenin wrote about all this stuff a hundred years ago, and it's just as true today as it was then. Specifically, I just keep going back to left wing communism and infantile disorder. Oh yeah. And the last thing I'll say here is. He makes a fundamental point, which is still tr so true today, that the ultra left and the right deviationists, they support each other. And the ultra leftists who are like the burn it down anarchists who support overthrowing every government, including and especially workers, governments and socialist governments. But it, except for Rojava. <laughs> yeah, they and the right deviationists, the right wing social Democrats, the Jacobin types who love who want to just be all European social democratic models all around the world, as, as if that's possible, because the whole point of European social democracy is that it's relying on super exploitation of workers in the global south. They they ultimately they agree in many things and play the same role politically. And what's that role? That role is the forces of reaction against socialism. That role is they they ultimately either want to overthrow socialism because every time socialism actually manages to gain power somewhere, it's authoritarian in their so-called authoritarian, their language, or because they don't actually want that because they're actually just liberals. And at the end of the day, if you scratch these people hard enough, a lot of them are liberals. A lot of what, call, what accounts for the so-called, what goes for the so-called left in the US and Europe and Canada 
a lot of them. And and by the way, this is even true for some places in the global south, the kind of elite enlightened. Of course, I say enlightened sarcastically, the elite educated so-called left-wing intellectuals, a lot of them are all just liberals at the end of the day. Well, thank you so much for coming. And this is going to be a fun episode. And hopefully we can like get people to like be a little cautious the next time the U.S. does something ridiculous, like, I don't know, China's apparently manufactured a virus to kill white people or something. I'm not being sarcastic. I'll send it to you. (laughs) Those are one of those articles where you say, who wrote it, a literal Nazi or a liberal? What's the difference in that case? Exactly. Well, have a great day and thanks again. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thanks for letting me rant because it's nice to be able to rant about this I stuff. love your rants because you are giving people a roadmap on how to not be a regime change dupe again. Yeah, I hope so. So yeah, that's the theme. Don't be a regime change dupe and resist the blue-brown liberal fascist axis. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.